0: Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have this comment from uh, yesterday's show, responding to yesterday's show. You recall that we talked with uh, Jasmine Singer, who describes her memoir "Always Too Much and Never Enough" as the story of one woman's journey to find herself through juicing, veganism, and love. And we also talked with uh, representatives from Art Access in Salt Lake City. Jasmine Singer will be appearing at Art Access as a part of their Body Image Project. So Glenn emailed the program, and this actually came in during the program yesterday. Uh, Sorry, Glenn, I didn't didn't get that on, but we'll get it on now. Uh, He says, Tom and Jasmine, what a great topic, body image. On my list of issues, this one is number 1047, though it is not ranked by its weight or influence upon me where it should be, really close to number one. My father, who was then a retired Salt Lake City firefighter, told me I was fat when I was 11." I've never been able to shake that. He adds in parentheses, my PD. A couple of my daughters, he goes on, are overweight and completely at ease with it. I don't and never would run their nose in it. I tried to let them see by example. I and my ex-wife tried to lead by doing, not by telling. They haven't really tried to lose weight, and it doesn't bother them the way even the thought of being fat did for me. I've never really been overweight but I can't look into a mirror and see a thin person regardless. Thank you for sharing this. And he concludes, And men do suffer from eating disorders, body image issues, and persecution. That's Glenn. Thank you for that, Glenn. Keep those comments coming at UPRAccess at gmail.com or at our website,
1: upr.org. This program is made possible by a grant to Utah Humanities as part of the Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize Board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and humanities on American life today, to imagine their future, and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of Pulitzer Prize-winning work. This year-long project in Utah is a collaboration between Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, Utah Public Radio, and KCPW. The Campfire's initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University. Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom
0: Williams. My guest for the hour is Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter Charles Duhigg. His book, The Power of Habit, explored the fascinating science of habit forna- formation rather in our lives, companies, and society. And his new book, Smarter, Faster, Better, explores the science of productivity. Duhigg says that in today's world, it's more important to manage how you think rather than what you think. He says advances in communication and technology are supposed to make our lives easier. Instead, they often seem to fill our days with more work and stress. And Duhigg says in part, that's because we've been paying attention to the wrong innovations. We've been staring at the tools of productivity rather than the lessons those technologies can teach us. In this hour, we will uh, see what we can learn from how Google forms Teams. We'll look at how the Cincinnati Public School District made data about student learning styles and test scores more difficult for teachers to absorb with good effect. We will uh, see how filmmakers behind Disney's Frozen made one of the highest-grossing movies under crushing time pressures and narrowly averted disaster by fostering a certain kind of creative pressure. And we'll see what we can learn about habit formation from the U.S. Army. Here's my conversation with Charles Duhigg. I wonder if we could start back on the, uh, the previous book, The Power of Habit, I just, I just find so fascinating your introduction to the science of habit formation. Uh, you're, you're out in, in Iraq, right, to talk to an Army major there. What if you could tell us that story.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, was a, I, I had just graduated from business school and became a, a reporter, and one of my first um, assignments was to go to Iraq. And, and when I landed in Baghdad, I basically realized this was like the worst decision I'd ever made to get sent to Iraq. And, and so I was looking for stories I could do that would let me stay indoors for the most part. And, and I heard about this army major down in Kufa, which is a, a city about an hour south of Baghdad, that was doing this kind of interesting experiment. And this guy had been sent down to stop riots from happening. And, and so what he did is he sat down with the mayor of the city, and he said, you know, he had this laundry list of requests. And the last request was, can you take the food vendors out of the plazas? And the mayor said, sure, sure, I can get the food vendors out of the plazas. So a couple of, hour, a couple of days later, there's um, a group that starts gathering around the Grand Mosque of Kufa. And the thing they never tell you about riots in television news is that it starts, um, it takes hours and hours for a riot to develop, right? A, a small group of people will show up and then more spectators and spectators and spectators until the crowd is big enough that someone throws a rock and kind of all hell breaks loose. And so a couple of days later, this starts happening. Some, some troublemakers show up and some spectators and the crowd gets larger and larger and larger. It gets about to the size when a riot looks like it's going to break out. And that's about 5:30, 5:45 at night, and the people at the periphery of the crowd, they start looking around because it's dinner time, and they start looking for something to eat. But the mayor had res- removed all the food vendors from the plazas, so so the people at the periphery of the crowd, they kind of just wander home to go have dinner. And then there's another ring of people who are right inside that, that group of spectators and they see these folks leaving and they assumably think to themselves, oh, there must be a better riot going on someplace else. I'm gonna fire, follow all those people to wherever they're going. And over about 45 minutes, the entire plaza clears out and the riot never happens. And it had been about nine months that, since the major had made this change and there hadn't been a riot since then. And I asked him, how did you know that removing the food vendors would stop riots? And he said, well, I didn't really know, but, but when, I, when I enlisted in the military, I kind of learned that the, the, the entire military is designed as a habit change machine, right? And our instinct when we're getting shot at is to run the other direction, but, but the military teaches people to shoot back, or it teaches them good communication habits, so when they're on the battlefield, they know what to do. And he said, once you start seeing a, group of cr- a crowd, a group of people as, as a collection of habits, it starts changing how you think, and you recognize that if you can change the environment, you can change how people behave.
0: And, and this major, he says, uh, you, you quote him, my wife and I write out habit plans for our marriage. So I guess you, once you learn these that's principles, absolutely you can—
2: right. He does it for his kids. I mean, I think that's the thing, is that once you understand how habits function, it gives you a lot of power over the world. Now, now, what's interesting about that is that the, the book that, that just recently came out this week about the, the science of productivity, it kind of builds on that idea. Because if, if habits are something that happen almost unconsciously, things that happen without us really having any control over it, then, then productivity in some ways is actually the opposite, right? Productivity is about making more deliberate decisions, about, about understanding how your brain works, so that you can take more control of your days and do the things that are useful and productive, rather than simply falling into a trap of doing whatever keeps you busy.
0: You know, as I'm, uh, I've watched some, uh, you know, some videos of you talking about this, back to the army major in Iraq, uh, it's fascinating, but it, it can also, if you apply that to. You know, companies who are targeting our habits, it can be a little bit concerning. Um, you know, for you tell a story about uh, Target. Um, a, a, a father uh, gets this circular for, you know, pregnancy uh, products. And, it, and his, he says, well, well, my daughter's not, uh, she's not pregnant. But it turns out <laughs> the story that Target knows more than the father.
2: That's exactly right. So, so one of the things that we know, and, and this is kind of the age that we live in, is, is that companies collect data on us. And they can use this data for what's known as predictive analytics, for trying to predict how we'll behave and what we'll do. And this has become really, really useful for, for companies and for individuals, right? We're living during an age of big data. Well, one of the drawbacks of this, though, is that in this age of big data, is that we have to be careful about whether we're actually learning from data or not. In fact, one of the, the ideas um, that we explore in, in Smarter, Faster, Better is about this concept called disfluency. And it's about the Cincinnati public school system. The Cincinnati public school system was much like Target, was collected a ton of data on, on each of its students. And it would make these really fancy graphs and memos and they would send them to teachers to try and educate teachers about, you know, what they should be doing to help their students learn. They did this for a couple of years and what they found is that the teachers never looked at the memos. They never paid attention to any of the graphs. The, the school district had a bunch of data, but they weren't learning anything from it. So the school, the, the district decided to do something different. They said, from now on, instead of sending you guys a bunch of memos and graphs and things that are really easy to read, what we're going to ask is we're going to ask every teacher to go into what's known as a data room. And we're going to ask you to transcribe students' test, cards, test scores by hand onto these index cards. And then make piles of those index cards to try and figure out which students are doing well and which ones are falling behind. Now, when you think about it, this is totally inefficient, right? To, to, to take this, like, data, and instead of looking at printouts and computerized graphs, to, to translate it by hand onto index cards, that doesn't seem like it should make any sense. But what they found is that the teachers started learning so much more about how their students were actually learning. They started understanding what the numbers really meant because they had to interact with the information. They had to interact with the data. Within psychology, this is known as creating disfluency. And what it says is that when we're surrounded by a lot of information, sometimes in order to really absorb it, we have to make it a little bit harder to process. We have to give ourselves an opportunity to interact with the numbers and the the figures. And, in fact, we find this all the time in people's lives. That, For instance, I have this, um, this scale at home that sends all my daily weight when I stand on it to my, an app on my phone, and it creates this really pretty graph of how much weight I've gained or lost every week. And at first I thought that this would be like transformative, right, that I would, like, I, I would learn so much from this. But what I found was I basically would look at the graph and then kind of just like, let my eyes slide over it and not pay any attention. It never changed how I was behaving. So then I started this new, this new routine. Every Sunday night, what I would do is I'd sit down and I'd open up that app, and I would, I would take all the information, the data, out of the app, and I would make a graph by hand on a piece of paper. And then I would, I would write down what I ate each day. And suddenly I started noticing these patterns. Like, for instance, you know, on Wednesday, I didn't go for a run that morning, and I ate a hamburger, and I gained two pounds. And it took three days to, take, to, to lose those two pounds. But on Thursday in the morning, I, I went for a jog and, and I ate a salad for lunch. And on my graph, it shows that, you know, I actually lost half a pound that day. It, once you interact with data, you really begin to learn from it. So it's not enough just to say we're living in an age of big data. You really have to somehow force yourself to, to use that data to make some sense of it.
0: I guess I guess the, the message is that, you know, uh, companies are using big data, stores like Target, to target us. We, we, should be, we should be using this better to help ourselves?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things that we know about this age, about, about the most productive people not only collect data about their lives, but they actually force themselves to interact with that data. I mean, another interesting thing, there's another chapter in Smarter, Faster, Better that looks at decision-making. One of the things that we know is that people who are much more successful, they tend to make better decisions, and they make decisions in a different way. In particular, what they do is they look to their own experiences as a set of experiments. They look for data that their own life generates. Now, most of us, we don't... We don't think about our past as a series of experiments, right? We don't sit down and think like, oh, I tried this, and, and it failed, but I tried that, and it succeeded, and and what made the difference? Instead, we just kind of like think of our lives as basically uh, uh, a series of events. But But really successful people, they – they think about their lives as experiments. They think about failures as not necessarily something to shy away from or feel embarrassed about, but instead as an opportunity to collect data and then put that data to better use.
0: You're listening to Access AccessUTIM. Tom Williams, a conversation with New York Times reporter, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Charles Duhigg. Uh, His previous book, The Power of Habit, explored the science of habit formation. His new book, Smarter, Faster, Better, explores the science of productivity. Coming up in this conversation, we will uh, learn what we can learn from how Google puts together teams. And we'll see what we can learn from how filmmakers behind Disney's Frozen, one of the highest grossing movies ever, they were under crushing time pressures and narrowly avoided dis- a disaster by fostering a certain kind of creative pressure. We'll learn some of those lessons, continue our conversation. I reached uh, Charles Duhigg yesterday, uh, but uh, would still be uh, interested in your comments on this fascinating subject at upraxis@gmail.com, upraxisgmail.com. We'll get your comments on during the hour. More following the break.
2: Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. Padma Lakshmi is host of the hit show Top Chef. Next time on Q, I'll speak with Padma about her new memoir, which tracks her life behind the camera and in the kitchen, from her marriage to Salman Rushdie to a career in food TV. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio
1: International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio.
2: This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. It's costly for a company not to have a constancy of purpose. I'm guilty of that most Saturday nights when we get in the car and go to dinner. We head towards one restaurant, change our minds, head towards another, and perhaps even another. Annoying, yeah, but costly, not very. But a company without constancy of purpose is in a death spiral. They invest in personnel and equipment to do one job, then head in another direction. They do a costly retool, then try again. If the pattern continues, the company will eventually run out of resources, time, and business. Excellent companies have a constancy of purpose. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. I I take myself over to the doctor's office. She sits me down and she says, look, get some exercise. Best treatment for anxiety, get some exercise. So I go to a psychiatrist to
1: see if I can get some medication.
3: (laughs) Join us next time for the Moth Radio Hour, True Stories Told Live. From the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org.
1: Join us Saturday night at 6 on Utah Public Radio. This program is part of a Pulitzer Campfire Centennial Partnership between Utah Public Radio, Utah Humanities, KCPW, and the Salt Lake Tribune. Thanks
0: for listening to Access Utah Today. We're joined on the program today by Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter Charles Duhigg. His previous book, The Power of Habit, explored the science of habit formation. His new book, Smarter, Faster, Better, explores the science of productivity. Duhigg says that in today's world, it's more important to manage how you think rather than what you think. And he says that uh, advances in communications and technology are supposed to make our lives easier. Instead, they often seem to fill our days with more work and stress, and he says in part that's because we've been paying attention to the wrong innovations. We've been staring at the tools of productivity rather than the lessons those technologies can teach us. I reached Charles DuHig yesterday by telephone, but you can still respond to the subject. Hope that you will. Maybe you have a personal experience on this. You can get your email to us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at We'll get that on during the hour. You write in your introduction to uh, Smarter, Faster, Better. You're trying to get in touch with the tool Gawande. and uh, this really resonated with me because you you see him, and I think most people would, as as a very productive person.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There, there, I mean, so the origin for this book, Smarter, Faster, Better, was that was that I kind of realized that we're living in this time where where everyone feels like they're running as hard as they can, but despite that it still sometimes feel like we're slipping farther and farther behind. But there are these people out there, like Atul Gawande, who seem uniquely skilled and talented at getting a lot of things done. Right. We, we've, we all know these people, folks who who they seem like they're on top of um, everything at work and they're great parents and they have time for their marriage. And when you talk to them, they seem kind of relaxed. It doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like they're struggling as hard as everyone else. And what what the mystery I was trying to figure out was, look, everyone only has 24 hours in each day. Right. All of us have the same limitations and challenges. And yet there's some people who seem who seem to get so much more done, and, and I wanted to understand why. And as I started talking to, to neurologists and organizational psychologists and, and to executives who are particularly talented at getting things done or individuals who are, who are uniquely creative and seem to, to be creative on a, on a must, much faster timeline, what I realized is that the most productive people, they actually think differently than everyone else. They, they're much more aware of how their brain functions. And as a result, they have these tools for making better decisions or for generating self-motivation or for sharpening their focus. And that more importantly, all of us can learn from that. All of us can become more productive. We can become better at governing our own minds, particularly in this economy as it's changing in this world where we're inundated by information and apps. It, but the key is to sort of learn how to use these tools, to learn that there's choices out there that some of us don 't see, but that the most productive people not only are aware of, but that they act on every day
0: so uh, how do you how do you define productivity
2: so I think productivity is is one of those things that has a definition that changes from person to person, place to place, right? For some people, a productive morning means that you get to zero inbox. right? You've dealt with all your emails. But for other people, a productive morning means that you, you have enough time to take your kids to school and chat with them on the way or to go for a run and get your exercise workout in. <clears throat> but underlying all of it is this basic principle, which is productivity means that you can get, achieve your goals with less waste and stress and struggle. So, that, so when people are productive and companies are productive, it means that they are focused on the right things and that they're able to achieve those things without having a huge amount of um, sacrifices along the way. Now, that might differ from person to person and place to place. It might even be a different definition um, depending on whether it's a weekend or a weekday for you. But, but, the, but at the core of it is this basic idea, which is that there are these tools that help people become more productive. And by giving you those tools, we empower you to decide what productivity is for you and then to make it easier and make it more real.
0: So it's focusing on, I guess, focusing on the why of, of what you're doing? Uh,
2: well, so, so one of the big lessons is that when it comes to, to how the most productive people motivate, for instance, is that you're exactly right. They focus on why. So, so one of the things that we know is that our, uh, there's a part of our brain known as the striata that gets, that where motivation seems to generate, right? People who are particularly self-motivated, they've figured out ways to, to activate this part of their brain. And, and the easiest way to, mo- to activate that part of your brain is to make choices that make you feel like you're in control. So it's to find opportunities to sort of assert yourself and to, to find ways to think about what you're doing that make it seem meaningful so so one of my favorite examples of this is email, right? We all struggle with kind of a an avalanche of email that we have to deal with all the time it, One of the best methods for Generating motivation to deal with email and 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 is something I used myself I I used to come home from work and like I'd have like you know 30 emails that I had to reply to And I'd be tired and I just want to eat dinner with my kids and then have a glass of wine and watch TV And it was like a struggle to get started on the email So what this psychologist told me is look this is what you should do sit down at your your computer You know after the kids are in bed and oh take all the emails that you need to reply to and just hit reply 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 fill up your your desktop so that you've got all these windows And then go into each one and just type like a half sentence that makes you feel in control. So if someone has asked, you know, can we have a meeting tomorrow? Say, yes, but we need to meet at, um, you know, 1230 and I've only got 20 minutes. Or if they say, hey, look, can you have lunch next week? Say, okay, but I want to eat Indian food. Don't hit send. Just type these half sentences. And then when you're all done with that, then go back and fill in the rest of the emails. You know, hey, Jim, thanks so much. We can definitely meet tomorrow, but I want to do it at 1230 for 20 minutes. Because it's so much easier to generate this self-motivation once you've started, once you've made an assertion of control, it triggers that parts of your brain where self-motivation resides. But, but we all know that that's not enough for, like, really important things, right? Like, like, you can get yourself to respond to some emails that way, but how do you generate the motivation for really big tasks? Well, exactly as you described, you have to find the reason why you're doing it. It, One professor I was talking to who is a cancer researcher, very, very productive cancer researcher, he said, look, the thing that I hate doing is I hate grading students' papers. Like, it's just boring, and it, it just seems like a waste of time to me. And so the way he generates motivation to do that is he sits down, and before he starts grading, he tells himself, look, the reason I'm grading these papers is because it helps the university make money to enroll these students. And when the university is making money, they can pay me to do cancer research. And I think cancer research is the most important thing I can do with my life. So by grading students' papers, I'm helping myself do cancer research. I'm helping cure cancer. Now, obviously this is the type of thing that in the back of our minds we should all know, right? But one of the things that we know about the neurological process is that very frequently, we develop neural pathways by having this inner dialogue that makes things explicit to us. That by tying grading, grading students' papers to doing cancer research, that it actually strengthens neurologically the relationship between those things. And as a result, it's easier to generate the motivation for them. And the, the tool for doing that, the mechanism for kind of getting your brain to make that leap is by asking yourself why.
0: And that why is very, very important, and paired with control, right? I, I think, you, you write in the book that some feel like we're productive when we're just merely busy. That certainly resonates with me. Sometimes I, I and and it, it's tied up with uh, I just feel out of control.
2: That's absolutely right. Is it, it, you know one of the things that I think happens is that there is a there, there's what what's known within psychology as a cognitive need for closure. That we, we we want to feel like we want to feel like we 're on top of things and so as a result there's this instinct to try and um, make fast decisions to, to to clear everything off of our to- do list to 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 try and seek control and control is great being in control is really really important but you want to but it 's important to channel that into something that 's useful one of my favorite examples of this is to-do lists um, there 's been a lot of research in in the right way and the wrong way to write a to-do list. And, and the way that I used to write a to-do list is that I would sit down and I would just sort of jot down all the tasks I want to get done. Very frequently, I would put at the top of my to-do list like some easy stuff, right, because it feels so good to cross off those, those small things. You can kind of get this, this feeling of closure because you're on top of things. And at the bottom of the list, I'd put some of the harder things. Sometimes at the top of the list, I would actually write things that I had already done so that when I sat down at my desk, I could cross them off right away because it felt so good to do that. But what psychologists say is that this is exactly the wrong way to write a to-do list. This is what's known as using a to-do list for mood repair instead of productivity so what they say you should do instead and this is what the most this is how the most productive people end up tend to write to do lists is that at the top of your to do list you should write what's known as a stretch goal like some big ambition something that normally would be at the bottom of your list that you that you really care about and then under that you need to break that down into a plan because the problem with writing our biggest ambitions at the top of a page is that sometimes they can seem kind of overwhelming, right? We don't know where to start. If your goal is to run a marathon or lose 30 pounds or, or write that, memo, that big important memo or, or increase revenues by 10%, if you put that at the top of a page, sometimes you'll shy away from it. It almost seems too big. So underneath it, what psychologists recommend is that you write what are frequently known as SMART goals. And they're called SMART goals because the, the, the letters smell, spell it SMART. That You want to choose a goal. You want to break your big goal into a plan that is specific. So say specifically what you want to get done that morning. And it's measurable, right? Like and I want to say not only specifically what I'm doing, but how I'm going to measure it. And I need to figure out, is it achievable? What, what do I need in place in order to, to get this thing done? It, what, what is realistic? Like if, for instance, I want to write a memo, if, it, if my specific goal is to write a memo and I want, to write, I want to write three pages within two hours, is that achievable? Yeah, I can do that, but I need, probably need to turn off my email in order to, to clear time on my schedule. And is that realistic? Well, yeah, to, to turn off my email, what I need to do is I probably need to set up some type of autoresponder or I need to turn off the phone. And then what's the timeline? Well, I want to set aside an hour and a half for this. Right, So I have this big goal that I want to write this big, important memo, this stretch goal. But underneath it now, I have a plan. I know exactly what to do. And that way, when I sit down at my desk, I feel like I'm in control, but I'm in control the right way.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that, that resonates. You're listening to Access Utime, Tom Williams, and I'm talking with uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter Charles Duhigg. His new book is Smarter, Faster, Better. It explores the science of productivity. His previous book, The Power of Habit, explored the science of habit formation in our lives, companies, and society. And uh, we'll have more with Charles Duhigg following this break.
2: I'm Jeremy Hobson. The government is trying to regulate unmanned drones, especially larger, more advanced models. That have a lot of velocity, a lot of mass, that have high performance characteristics. They could bump into another aircraft, they could get sucked into an engine, and those are the
1: things that we don't want to have happen.
2: The head of the FAA joins us to talk drones. That's next time
1: on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio.
3: It's a gathering place where conversations happen, plans are made, games are played, and the sense of smell is surpassed only by the sense of taste. It's the kitchen. And public radio producers, the Kitchen Sisters, have found this to be the perfect place to collect and share stories heard on NPR and Utah Public Radio. They're coming to Logan in April. They're gathering at the table here in Logan, and you can listen to their stories live in the USU Performance Hall. Admission is free, but ticket reservations are required. For more information and to reserve your ticket, go to UPR.org. How hard would it be
0: for you to pay an unexpected $1,000 expense today, right now? If your answer is
3: plenty hard? got some company. Your friends and family tend to be in similar economic circumstances to you. So people who don't have the thousand dollars don't know a lot of people who have the thousand dollars to spare.
0: The results of our Marketplace Edison Research poll on the economy and your financial stress all
1: next week on Marketplace. Join us weeknights at 6:30 on Utah Public Radio. This program is part of a Pulitzer Campfire Centennial Partnership between Utah Public Radio, Utah Humanities, KCPW, and the Salt Lake Tribune. Thanks for
0: listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter Charles Duhigg. His previous book, The Power of Habit, explored the science of habit formation. His new book, Smarter, Faster, Better, explores the science of productivity. Duhigg says that in today's world, it's more important to manage how you think rather than what you think. And uh, we are talking with Charles Duhigg on the program today. You're welcome to join this conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I think with me, and I'm probably typical of a lot of people Today, with all the technology, and, it, and it's supposed to make our lives better, isn't it? But uh, for example, productivity tools. And I, I'm a big fan of productivity tools. I've used a lot of them, but it uh, seems like some of them just lead me into the weeds, and I I, uh, I, I struggle with this. I guess I'm learning the wrong lesson.
2: It was, so, so which goals do you feel like? Which tools do you feel like lead you into the weeds?
0: Well, uh, just some, you know, some, some typical um, uh, productivity tools. Um, f- for example, I've used Trello and, and Asana and, uh, you know, some of these, some of the, and, and they can be very helpful, but it seems like at the end of any of these experiments, they're just temporary experiments and uh, I end up at the same place. I just feel like I'm too cluttered and I'm, I'm not accomplishing what I, you know, the core goals. So I guess it comes back to me.
2: So I, I think this is pretty typical. I mean, one of the things that we find is that when most people think about productivity, they tend to think of productivity as something that might, as like a, a life hack, right? Something that might increase their efficiency by 1% or 2%. And that's great. It's great to increase our efficiency by 1% or 2%. But what we've, what we've found is that people who are genuinely productive, they, they're not looking for quick fixes that just kind of speed up their day a little bit. They, they're looking for things that change what they're doing by 10 or 15 or 20%. Because the truth of the matter is that if, if I look at your life and I just tell you, um, you know, I'm, you're going to do all the same stuff, you're just going to do it a little bit faster, that's not really that useful, right? Like, like you're, still, you're still on the same treadmill. You just happen to have increased the speed a little bit. It, people who are genuinely productive, they know how to start thinking differently. They usually step back, and in fact, they make decisions like, I'm focused on the wrong kinds of goals, or I'm getting distracted because I'm not, I'm not sharpening my focus the right way, or I keep on feeling my motivation lag at the wrong time. So instead of looking for these like little things that they can fix, they look for big things. They look to understand how can I train myself in how my brain works so that I know how to generate motivation when I really need it. How can I train myself to remain focused on a task and not get distracted by all the small things that can pop up every day? Big changes, they come from making, or big improvements come from making big changes. Um, And oftentimes that means that we have to, embrace something that's kind of audacious one of my favorite stories about this is the invention of the bullet train um in the 1950s when when japan was rebuilding economically the head of the railway system and and the railway system was incredibly important in japan because it's how most of the goods within the country moved around the head of the railway system went to his top engineers and he said look we need to improve our train system at that point trains went about 55 miles per hour in general He said, I want you to invent a train that can go 120 miles per hour. And all of his engineers said, that is crazy. There's no way. It's impossible. We can't do that. We can't make that happen. Maybe we can invent trains that go like 65 miles per hour, maybe 70 miles per hour. But the head of the railway system, he said, look, that's not good enough. We need to rebuild this country. If we look for incremental improvements, we're just going to have incremental growth. What we need to do is we need to figure out, how to jump forward. So the engineers sat down, and what they found was that once someone had challenged them this way, to to try and do something that's impossible, to try and achieve this stretch goal, that they, they had to start thinking about things in completely different ways. Rather than thinking about a train as something with a locomotive at the front and cars behind, they had to start thinking about maybe there's a way to invent a train where every single car is a locomotive. But the thing is that if every single car is a locomotive, it makes the train much heavier, and the tracks wouldn't support that. So instead they had to start thinking about how do you redesign the tracks? And then once they started thinking about redesigning the tracks, they realized, well, if the train turns too much, we can't go that fast. But Japan's really hilly, so what we'd have to do is we'd have to drill all these tunnels through all these mountains. It took about two years, but at the end of it, they had this plan, this audacious plan, to say, let's create a national railway system where we drill tunnels through mountains, we come up with a completely new way of building tracks, we have trains where every single car is a locomotive instead of being pulled from the front, and that was the birth of the bullet train. Hmm. It transformed not only Japan, but it transformed every, almost every other type of transportation since then.
0: That comes from, uh, I guess, a, a leader, right, who, who says we, we have to totally reframe how we're, how we're thinking about this.
2: I think it comes from a leader, but I, I, I think it also comes from all of us acting as leaders, right? Mm. I, I mean, one of the things that we know is that in contemporary workplaces, the role of the leader is becoming more and more ambiguous. Um, I, you know, I, belong, I work at the New York Times, and I belong to five or six teams. And I'm not even certain who the leader of those teams are, right? We're all kind of leaders. I mean, that's sort of the point of today's workplaces is that everyone has to take the initiative. Uh, within, within the business world, this is known as like a lean management system or an agile philosophy towards management, which says that you, you take advantage of your, of your employees' best instincts. You can take advantage of everyone's unique expertise when you empower the person who's closest to a problem to be the one who's solving that problem. The challenge then becomes, so, so how do teams work best? How do people work best? And there's actually some really interesting research in this. One of the chapters in Smarter, Faster, Better was excerpted recently in the New York Times magazine, and it was about Google's quest to build the perfect team. Google spent millions of dollars in four years trying to figure out what makes the perfect team. And at first they thought that the answer was, well, if you, if you take the right people and you put them together, right? Like maybe you need people who are friends away from work or maybe it's a mix of introverts and extroverts. And what they found is that n- that wasn't right. Actually, in many ways, it doesn't matter who is on a team. What matters is how the team interacts. In particular, the best teams according to Google study, tended to have this thing known as psychological safety. They found that people on those teams all felt like they, in some respects, were leaders of the team. And they felt that way because everyone on the team would usually speak in roughly equal proportion, right? Everyone had a voice. But that wasn't enough on its own. They also found that the best te- on the best teams, people have what's known as high social sensitivity, that is, everyone on the team kind of can pick up on uh, each other's nonverbal cues. So when someone is feeling unhappy, someone else at the table would say, hey, it looks like you're, you're, your arms are crossed. Like, like what are you thinking? Are, are you okay with what we're talking about? Or if someone seemed really enthusiastic, they would say, you know, Susan, it looks like you're really into this idea. Why don't, why don't you take lead on it? it? And the way you learn to be socially sensitive to each other, the way you learn to pick up on those nonverbal cues is, is by spending time getting to know each other a little bit, listening to each other. And what's interesting about this is that you would think that the best teams at Google are the ones where people got right down to business, right? You have an agenda. Everyone sticks to the agenda. We get to work as soon as we sit down. But it's actually the opposite. The best teams at Google, the most effective teams, are the ones that, where people tend to, to you know, talk about their weekends or gossip with each other for the first five minutes, they, they tend to, um, to, to go off agenda. If, uh, if an idea catches their fancy, they'll say, look, let's just take 10 minutes to talk about this. I know we weren't supposed to today, but this is really interesting. Those are teams where everyone feels like they can speak up, and everyone is kind of sensitive to what each other is thinking. They're really listening to each other. And to an outsider, that might not seem like an efficient way to run a meeting, right? That might not seem like an efficient team but over time that team will be much much more productive than a group of strangers who basically don't know each other know anything about each other
0: there's some interesting lessons taken from uh, at least to my view some unexpected places you you tell the story about uh, the behind the scenes of the making of Disney's Frozen which of course we know as one of the you know biggest sellers of all time but apparently there was yeah. trouble behind no, the scenes
2: you're exactly right the um The story behind Disney is – the story behind Frozen is fascinating because we all know Frozen as this hit movie. But what most people don't realize is that Frozen was on the brink of catastrophe until literally just a few months before it appeared in movie theaters. In in particular, what was really frustrating to the people who were making Frozen was that they didn't have very much time. It, Disney usually spends about five years making an animated feature. But because another movie had like, suddenly blown up, they, they told the team behind Frozen that they had to make that movie in two years. And everyone was panicked and rushed. And so in, in some ways they didn't have enough time to really go through this like, long creative process. What they had to do instead was they had to think very deliberately about the process they were using to make the movie, and they had to make that innovation much, much more productive. And the way that they did that is a trick that people have used for years, which is instead of trying to create something that's entirely new, they took old ideas that they were familiar with, that they knew worked, and they started combining them in new ways. So one of the things that the, the filmmakers behind Frozen did is they said, look, Disney knows princesses, right? We've got over over 50 years of experience with how princess stories work. And and the team that was writing Frozen had uh, uh, an unusually large number of women on it. In fact, one of the the, um, the co-directors was the first female director in Disney's history. And she and some of her colleagues said, you know, the other thing that we kind of know pretty well is all of us have sisters. We know stories about how sisters interact. We know what feels true about that. So let's take these two ideas, a princess story and a sister story, and let's bring them together. And that's how Frozen was created. And what we've all seen on the, on the screen, which is amazing, is that instead of the prince saving the princess, instead it's about two princesses that save each other. In fact, at the end of the movie, you learn that the prince is the bad guy. The way that they were able to do that is because they relied on this technique of making innovation more productive, making it faster, which is to take two old things that you know pretty well and put them together in a new combination, now, that doesn't mean that every combination works, but it does teach us how to recognize those opportunities to say something new by relying on what we've already learned.
0: Access Utah, Tom Williams. It's my conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter Charles Duhigg, who joined me for the program today. My thanks to him. Uh, His previous book, The Power of Habit, explored the science of habit formation. And his new book, Smarter, Faster, Better, explores the science of productivity. Our thanks to uh, Charles Duhigg for uh, joining us on the program today. Coming up tomorrow, of course, uh, it is uh, our news roundup from the Salt Lake Tribune, behind the headlines. And uh, then on Monday, I hope you'll join us uh, for an encore presentation of a very interesting program. In 1937, a schoolteacher on the island of Maui challenged a group of poverty-stricken sugar plantation kids to swim upstream against the current of their circumstance, the goal to become Olympians. Children were Japanese-American. They're malnourished, barefoot, had no pool, trained in filthy irrigation ditches. And their teacher was an ordinary man whose swimming ability didn't extend much beyond treading water. They were the three-year swim club. And we'll hear their story on the program on Monday. Uh, That's the title of the book, Three-Year Swim Club. We'll uh, be joined by Julie Chakaway. Hope you join us then. Thanks for listening today.
1: And thanks for listening to Access Utah Today on Utah Public Radio, now from UPR News, the group 54 Strong were in Montgomery, Alabama, talking with those who work at the Equal Justice Initiative. As part of a 10-day civil rights pilgrimage to the U.S. South, Jason Gilmore has more.
4: When we think of the women of the civil rights movement, one powerful woman comes to mind. Rosa Parks, and rightfully so. Her iconic image, sitting alone on a bus, refusing to give up her seat to a white man, inspired a movement. But there are so many other women who have dedicated themselves to the cause of civil rights, not only in the 1950s and 60s, but still today. In fact, just two blocks down the street from where Rosa Parks caught her bus on that famed day in downtown Montgomery, Alabama, our 54 strong group visited the Equal Justice Initiative. The initiative, otherwise known as EJI, is the brainchild of the widely acclaimed public interest lawyer Brian Stevenson. It is a private, nonprofit organization that provides legal representation to impoverished defendants and prisoners who have been denied fair and just treatment in the legal system. Stevenson, along with his large and diverse staff, have dedicated their professional lives to fighting poverty and challenging racial discrimination in the criminal justice system. At EJI, we met with Nia Holston, a Justice Fellow who joined the initiative after her work on voter rights at the Bronx Defenders in New York. Holston is dedicated to social justice and epitomizes the powerful contributions that women have always brought to the fight for civil rights in America. Utah State University student Lauren Mata, along with Chloe Kapiloff of Bellevue College and Devon White of the University of Washington, caught up with Holston to get her take on the ongoing struggle for civil rights.
1: Do you mind telling us exactly like what drew you to the initiative group?
3: I was very interested um, in working on criminal justice reform and working directly with people. Um, I feel very strongly that Um, If you want to change policies, you have to know what the issues are, and you have to know why they're occurring. Um, And the only way you can do that is to talk with people that have been most impacted by them. Um, So I was very glad to work directly with people at EJI. And I think the other thing is... I really wanted to uh, connect uh, what I was seeing within the criminal justice system to these larger issues of racial justice and racial injustice. And I think that was a lot of what um, appealed to me about EJI and drew me here. So how has working with the EJI affected you personally? I think before coming here, I considered myself a person who was aware of these issues, um, who was passionate about them, um, and who wanted to change um, the system. I think meeting people like Mr. Hinton, meeting our clients, and seeing firsthand the devastation that this system has wrought on so many people, and how their voices are um, almost effectively silenced by this system, has impacted me in more ways than I can even, that I can even sum up. It's been um, such a challenging experience, but it's been one of the joys of my life that I could be here and work directly with people, so...
4: Jason Gilmore reporting from Montgomery, Alabama for Utah Public Radio.
3: More information on 54 Strong can be found at upr.org.
0: Support for the USU Civil Rights Pilgrimage, 54 Strong, is made possible in part by our members, the USU Access and Diversity Center and the USU Diversity Council, cultivating diversity of thought and culture and serving the public through learning, discovery, and engagement.
1: Deseret News columnist, Steve Eaton. It seems like nearly every commentary